This program is made possible by members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, find us at patreon.com slash left, or visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast, in which, after having recently looked primarily at Israel, we shall learn a bit about the flip side of the coin in the conflict to learn what life is like in Palestine and why the resistance against Israel is so resilient. Our clips today come from the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, This Is Hell, and Start Making Sense. We Palestinians don't get to liberation through negotiations like the Oslo Agreement. We don't get through to liberation through some goodwill on the part of the Israelis or their ideology. We get to liberation through actually Israel becoming as right wing as it can become and deciding to sort of imperialistically swallow up all the land, which looks like they might do now in the West Bank and maybe even in Gaza one day because they found gas there. And kind of take us all in and then have to finally answer the question of what are you going to do with these people? And I think that's the way we get to real liberation, one state in all of Palestine. And I actually think Bibi's going to take us there. I really do. I th- and Trump is helping him along. In a weird way, Trump and Netanyahu might liberate Palestine, not on purpose, but just because, you know, they really don't know what the hell they're doing. So they might take us well, there. Well, you know. The majority of Palestinians and Israelis, even now, are for a two-state solution. But the one-state solution advocates have been on the rise. And just to break the stereotype, we have Israeli soldiers objecting to the destruction in Gaza. They formed a group called Breaking the Silence. We have over 1,500 Israeli reserves who fought in the wars, putting out a dramatic proclamation a number of years ago saying that they will never fight in the West Bank and Gaza. They'll fight to defend Israel, but they will not fight to oppress and abuse an occupied people. You have the great human rights group, Beth Salem, has defended Palestinian human rights. You have, this is a remarkable poll. This was an Israeli university about eight, nine years ago, had a poll, and over 60% of the Israelis said, that Israel should negotiate with Hamas, and only about 29% said no. I go through all these because we've got to break the stereotype here that there's just one voice here. There are a lot of retired heads of the Israeli FBI and CIA who have spoken out publicly against the right-wing government run by Prime Minister Netanyahu, but none of them have ever been invited to testify in Congress. The most remarkable thing here is there's a lot of dissent in Israel that never gets a voice in Congress. Just the APAC right-wing militaristic view gets a voice. Now, having said all that, why have you now become, uh, if I'm not mistaken, a one-stater? I always was. I mean, I actually remember, you know, I was a teenager, but I actually remember a New York Times column by Edward Said back in the early 90s talking about a one-state solution even before Oslo. I think it's the only just solution. I mean, look, as a Palestinian, I am not willing to sort of settle for 22% of my 
native homeland of mandate Palestine. Look, we call ourselves Palestinian because of these lines that were drawn first sort of roughly by Ottomans and then by the British of what we now call Palestine, which is the whole thing, West Bank, Gaza, and Israel. And here's the funny thing, right? If you ask a Palestinian to draw his country or if he's wearing a pendant of his country around his neck, it's the whole thing. It's the West Bank, Gaza Strip, and Israel. If you ask an Israeli to draw his country, he draws the same thing. So emotionally, psychologically, we're all talking about the same piece of land. And as Palestinians, we identify as Palestinians throughout all of that land, whether we still live there or whether we're refugees. So if I'm interested in uniting Palestinians in our identity, if I'm interested in making sure all Palestinians who live on that land have rights and have the same rights, well, the only way there is a one-state solution. And it kind of solves all the problems, right? If you ended the occupation tomorrow, and even if the Palestinians got a state in the West Bank on 1967 borders, which they're not going to under any Israeli regime, but even if they did, then you next have the problem of what do you do about the Palestinians who live in Jerusalem, who are stateless, who pay Israeli taxes but don't vote in Israeli national elections? What do you do about them? And then if you solve that problem, then you still have the Palestinians who live inside Israel who have full citizenship on paper but are treated as second or third class citizens by the state. Their schools get one third of the funding as Jewish schools do. So that's where you have the real actual apartheid happening legally. You know, occupation can't be apartheid yet because it's still occupation. I mean, it's it's so you you solve all these problems with one state. Settlements aren't settlements anymore. They become part of a state. Jerusalem is not disputed anymore. It becomes the capital of this new state. You know, we, you don't have to change anything. The place sort of functions as one state anyway. The currency and the financial systems are the same in Gaza, West Bank, and Israel. Everyone uses the shekel. Everyone uses Israeli financial institutions. The infrastructure is the same. Palestinian cell phone companies that operate, quote-unquote, independently in the West Bank are buying their bandwidth from Israel because Israel owns the bandwidth everywhere. It owns the resources everywhere. So, I mean, this gets to true justice. The only hurdle. The only hurdle is the Israeli ideology that says this land belongs to Jews and Jews only, or at least Jews foremostly. And that is a, an ideology that when you're talking in the framework of a two-state solution, you don't have to really confront. In fact, in many ways, you are accepting it. And what I'm saying is I don't accept that ideology that says any inch of that land belongs to one religion or one ethnic group over another. I believe in a secular state. I believe in a democratic state. And, you know, you can call it Israel, Palestine. I don't really care. I mean, Palestine kind of sounds like a Jewish name to me anyway. So you can kind of call it <laughs> anything you want. I don't really care. Call it the Holy Land. Call it the Holy Federation. Call the whole thing Jerusalem. I'm interested in rights for my people. And the way and, that I get Amr, is one state. We've been talking, we're talking with Amr Zar, who's written a book called Being Palestinian Makes Me Smile. And... What do you think that one-state proposal would poll among Palestinians and among Israeli Jews? I think among Israeli Jews, it would probably poll pretty low because this is a sort of runs counter to the ideology, the founding ideology of Zionism, which says this land belongs to Jews and Jews only. But I go to Palestine all the time, okay? I actually am from Nazareth, like Jesus. That's what I tell white people, Ralph. I tell white people I am from Nazareth like Jesus because too many Americans think that Jesus had blonde hair and blue eyes and he's from South Carolina. And, you know, that's not true. Actually, Jesus probably kind of looked like you, Ralph. So I, uh, <laughs> I, I always tell people that. 
In fact, I think as Palestinians, we should be using Jesus like much more in all our marketing. You know, like everything that has to do with Palestine should have a picture of Jesus on it. He's the most famous man in the history of the world. You know, we should use him a little more often. And his mom is the most famous woman in the history of the world for doing what she did or what she didn't do. Or, you know, we don't really know. But in any case, we should use these people much more often. But I think that if you talk to Palestinians, I talk to Palestinians. I'm a Palestinian. I'm from Nazareth. I actually am from a town that is inside Israel. But I go to Ramallah, Bethlehem, Jerusalem. I do shows. I'm there all the time. If you have private conversations with Palestinians and you say to them, look, if tomorrow all these borders and checkpoints and these fences were gone and you could travel throughout the land of Israel or Palestine or whatever you want to call it freely, work where you want, have freedom of movement, but your passport said Israel on it, would you be okay with that? Publicly, for nationalistic reasons and for political reasons, a lot of people might not say it, but privately, everyone is okay with it. That is what we want. We want that freedom. Our problem is not with Jews living in our land or living in Palestine. Our problem is with an ideology that says this land is for Jews and Jews only. That's what we want to do away with. And in fact, it's funny because as a Palestinian, I deal with this all the time. And I also wrote right after the introduction that you read, Ralph, the next paragraph sort of says sarcastically, you know, also, I do not hate Jews. And as a Palestinian, I feel like we need to say this all the time, right? Because the discourse is dominated by Jews and Muslims hate each other. Jews and Palestinians hate each other. So it's intractable. And Palestinians just hate Jews. They're raised to hate Jews. And I was kind of sort of reminded of this sentiment among us, not reminded of it, but it was funny when Trump a couple of weeks ago, remember when he was having that terrible press conference that he kind of came in and decided he wanted to run a press conference. And he said, I'm the least anti-Semitic person you can know, which is a kind of weird way to frame, you know, something. I mean, why not just say you're not anti-Semitic, but whatever. Say I'm the least anti-Semitic. And then I thought of us as Palestinians and I said, actually, you know what? We're the least anti-Semitic people because the truth is, as you said, Ralph, we are familiar with all of these left-wing liberal Jewish organizations that express justice for Palestinians. Sure, we're familiar with Netanyahu and Lieberman and Bennett and these right-wingers that want to take away all our rights. But we're also very familiar with the left-wingers. And we see Jews march with us. And we see Jews in the West Bank showing solidarity with us. And so what happens as a result of that is, in fact, we are much more privy to the great range of Jewish opinion on Palestine than anybody else. And so as an Arab American, you're telling isn't it ironic that you, Ralph, as an Arab American, are trying to educate the American public about the diversity of Jewish opinion on Israel? See, we know about it. Nobody else knows about it. And so we don't see all Jews as evil or all, this sort of anti-Semitic label that we get is so inaccurate and, in fact, is a divorce from the reality that we live. We live with liberal Jews and Jews expressing justice about us all the time. The reverse is not true. occupation has been devastating, not only on the people of the occupied territory, but also on their land, which they depend upon for their food and water. Yet, while the conditions only get worse, Palestinians become more resilient. 
here to report to us. Correspondent Anurada Mittal reports to us on all things concerning land development around the world. And Anurada led the team on the new Oakland Institute report, Palestine for Land and Life. Anurada is founder and executive director of the Oakland Institute. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Anurada. Thank you so much for having me again, Chuck. Always great to hear your voice. You can find out more about Anurada's group by going to oaklandinstitute.org. And you can follow Anurada on Twitter at Mittal Oak. That's M-I-T-T-A-L O-A-K. So uh, your new report, Palestine for Land and Life, states in its overview that it, this whole thing started as a project examining the impact of the occupation on agricultural livelihoods with a special focus on land, water, and seeds. But the research quickly became about everyday life under occupation, the use of laws and military orders which subjugate Palestinians, and the struggle to sustain livelihoods in this context. To you, What explains why this report shifted from a report on the occupation's impact on the land and agriculture to a larger examination of the occupation's impact on everyday life? How much is occupation every part of every life at every moment in the occupied territories? Well, Chuck, I think for us as a policy think tank that is dedicated to looking at land issues, agricultural development issues, we had constantly been asked that how come we don't look at land issues in Palestine? And for many of us, we refuse or only see the issues in the Middle East as an issue of conflict, see it as an issue, a way too polarizing issue. So when we went in to look at it using the lens of land and agriculture, what it means, uh, you had to deal with everyday occupation and everyday occupation of livelihoods and lives itself. So whether it is looking at the livelihoods of people who are in a refugee camp since 1948, uh, barely a few miles away from their homes, but the fact that they cannot return to those lands now, uh, it has a huge impact on their livelihood. The fact that the wall is right there, which prohibits, um, you know, their uh, kind of any kind of opportunities to employment, um, that is a fact you have to look at. Similarly, being in Janine, when you are visiting villages and you're meeting farmers whose majority of their lands are on the other side of the wall, that they can access perhaps once a week or during the harvest time, you know, a couple of times during the week, or when the crops are ready and suddenly the wall, you know, gates are open and the wild boars can come in. Uh, This is not just... uh, a mere instance that just uh, happened, but it is an everyday occurrence that does happen, which is impacting lives and uh, livelihoods of the Palestinian communities. So whether it is homes being demolished in Jerusalem because of this whole schizophrenic system of area A, B, and C, the fact you're in area C, on your land you can't construct a home, or the fact that you're in Nabi Saleh and you find that your access to your own water springs has now been restricted as a settlement, which, by the way, is considered illegal by all international laws, suddenly has taken away your land and water, we had to not just look at people's access to land or what the impact or the agriculture is doing when you find thousands of your olive trees are being uprooted. You have to look at the source behind it all, and that is the occupation. When I think of a wall, maybe this is just simple semiotics or whatever, I think of 
like the Berlin Wall, which is uh, separating two populations, two sides of a wall. When I think of the wall that Donald Trump is talking about around uh, along the Mexican U.S.-Mexico border, uh, I think of a wall that's just separating two populations. When I read your report, I had a much better understanding of how horrible life is on the other side of the wall when it comes to uh, the occupied territories, because it isn't just a wall running down the middle and separating two sides. At times, you describe how it's a wall that actually completely surrounds a group of people. It's not a wall. So you have one side of the border and they have the other side of the border. It's a wall that keeps you enclosed in an area. How fair is it to consider or to make the claims that uh, occupied uh, the occupied territories, that Palestine is like a prison? Is that fair or is that do, oversimplifying uh, a description for what the people actually go through every day? Well, Chuck, I think um, what you just said I am so glad that finally our multimedia series and reports have conveyed that. You've said it much better than I could say it. When we envision a wall, as you said, in case of Germany, or you know, you think of the wall that Trump is proposing, you think of two sides of land equal and a wall running through it, though it has devastating consequences. But in the case of the occupied territory in Palestine, it is takes different forms, though it was suggested as a barrier to provide security to Israel. But it has really become a means of encircling, and you said it, creating cities that are uh, where the people there are living a life under siege, or it is really a prison, sometimes isolating you from the other Palestinian villages, your communities, your families. And the fact that it can take hours and days to be able to visit your family in the other village, because suddenly you're an isolated village encircled by the wall, is pretty stunning. The other thing is that the wall, which started as a separation barrier for security, deliberately comes into the West Bank, violating the 1967 agreement to take as much land as it can from the Palestinians. These are the fertile fields. These are the beautiful homes. This is the lives of people, and it is an everyday phenomenon. It is there with its watchtowers, with its barbed wires, with its, uh, at the same time, what our report does is not just talking about the everyday despair, as you mentioned earlier. It's about the resilience of the Palestinian communities and villages on the other side. So whether it is creating, you know, in the refugee camp, a playground for the children who have no space, where they have seen young people being killed by uh, the Israeli Defense Forces. Or you have the imagination, and which I think is the basis for first uh, creation of political ideas of children talking about their ability to become a kite and fly over that wall or whether it is beautiful political graffiti on those walls clearly stating that this is occupied territory, but yet it remains the land of Palestine. And at the same time, despite the farmers who have lost their lands, we also talk about Kanan Palestine, an organization which is providing fair trade, organic, um, you know, produce markets in the West, enabling some 15,000 Palestinian farmers to have good livelihoods. So in the face of this oppression, in the face of this everyday life surrounded by the wall, checkpoints, uh, everyday resilience to take back the lives, livelihoods, and dreams for the Palestinians.
You have done a lot of studying of uh, land use and, land, and movements that are uh, focused on land use around the world. You were just talking about the resilience of the Palestinian people within the occupied territories. How unique is Palestinian attachment for a land that has been so devastated by 70 years of occupation? How common is it to find this the kind of resilience you and your team witnessed when reporting on the occupied territories in other parts of the world or is this is this commonplace that people are this connected to their land that even though 70 years of encircled uh, harassment and destruction uh, that they still want that land is that unique or is that something that you do f- find all over the world that people have their greatest attachment to land and the people who are connected to that land well, Chuck, you know, Palestine, which is predominantly an agrarian economy, uh, people have always grown their food. The attachment to land is the place where they grow all of Palestine, Canaan, which is known as the land of milk and honey. Uh, the attachment to land is no different as we have experienced with communities in Ethiopia or in Papua New Guinea. So this conflict is not about based on religion. This is really about land for life. And uh, and that's why people say, as you mentioned, this year marks 100 years of the Balfour Declaration, which created the Jewish homeland in Palestine. This is 70 years since Nakba, which means the catastrophe, the 47-48, when hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were forcibly removed from their homes. This is the 50th year of the 1967 war and the occupation of uh, the West Bank and the Gaza. So when you look at that, you have to understand to say that too many years have passed and people shall move on is uh, pretty ironic that the idea of the creation of a homeland was based on the desire to return thousands of years later. So for us to feel like it is too polarizing that this is a conflict based on religion is completely a myth. It is really based on a life, you know, which is a struggle for life, for land, for liberty, and a life of dignity. When we showcase the losses that people have suffered from the loss of biodiversity, uh, you know, the crops that can actually survive in those extreme weathers under occupation from biodiversity to childhood, it is all disappearing. And that is why it becomes very important for international community, a policy think tank like the Oakland Institute, to look at those issues. And that's exactly what we have done. You were talking about the historical context, and the report states, according to Resolution 181, the Jewish state would be comprised of 56% of Mandate Palestine, the Arab state 44%, and the land around Jerusalem, including Bethlehem, would become an international area, awarding the Jewish state a larger portion of land was reportedly based on an assumption that Jewish immigration to the region would increase. However, nearly half the population of the proposed Jewish state consisted of Palestinian Arabs who own nearly 90% of the land. Therefore, Nakba happens and they were forced out of their homes, taken away from them by the burgeoning Israeli state. How much did Britain's mandate Palestine guaranteeing a Palestinian state and Britain's Balfour Declaration guaranteeing and a Jewish homeland create the problem that persists to this day? Can we blame what is happening today on 1917 and then post-war Britain getting a policy wrong? Well, you know, there's no denying the catastrophe and and the kind of horrors that were carried out in Europe during the Second World War. 
uh, we cannot deny them. But it is very interesting, Chuck, as you pointed out, and I heard over and over again, that how Europe decided to you know, resolve its problem without really looking at how the state of Israel was created. And more important, even today, how we continue to look the other way as policy after policy of the state of Israel has been one of uh, stealing land, taking as much land as possible from the Palestinians and hoping no Palestinians are on that land. So it could have been uh, you know, the creation when you have two states, the respect for the other, everyday violation of international laws, you know, forgetting the international mandate of also the right to return, the right of the Palestinian refugees to go back to their homes. None of those promises have ever been fulfilled. Those UN resolution after resolution has become nothing else but a meaningless set of words which are not carried out. While the international community has clearly declared these settlements to be illegal, today the government of Israel is carrying out more and more settlements and, in fact, may, making many of those illegal settlements into legally recognized settlements by the government of Israel. And this continuous theft of land from the Palestinians, this continuous disregard for the land and liberty and lives of Palestinians, and to make it just a problem of Israel and Palestine, while the government of the United States continues to pump endless amounts of monies as military aid to Israel, makes it a responsibility of each one of us to correct the wrong and to ensure that people can have lives back, they can have their land back, and they can have the liberty and freedom back. The Everyday Struggles of Palestinian Life, that's the subject of the new book by Ben Ehrenreich. He spent most of the last three years in the West Bank living with Palestinian families in villages and in cities. He's an award-winning writer whose work has appeared in Harper's, The New York Times Magazine, and The London Review of Books, among other publications. He's also written two novels. His new book is titled The Way to the Spring, Life and Death in Palestine. Ben Ehrenreich, welcome to the program. Thanks, John. It's good to be here. And we're also joined by Amy Willens. She's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation and a veteran of this show. She also worked as Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker and wrote an unforgettable novel about life on the West Bank. It's called Martyrs Crossing. Amy, welcome back. Thanks, John. Ben, to uh, understand Palestinian life today, you lived in a West Bank village, Nabi Saleh. How, how did you pick that one? Um, well, I never lived there for more than a few weeks. When I lived there, I lived in Ramallah. But I spent a fair amount of time there, even when I wasn't living there. And I first went to Palestine as a reporter in 2011 on an assignment for Harper's Magazine to write about the role of water in the occupation. And... I had heard about Nabi Saleh because in Nabi Saleh, like a bunch of other villages in the West Bank at the time, they were having weekly protests every Friday. Most of the villages um, that did that were on the course of the wall and were protesting the confiscation of their land in the construction of the wall. But Nabi Saleh was protesting the confiscation of a spring, just a, a water spring, by settlers who lived across the valley in a settlement called Halamish. And I spent 
I went one day for the demonstration a Friday, um, and in those days the demonstrations would last many hours. What fascinated me about Nabi Saleh was that, that by resisting, um, by staging these protests every Friday, they were bringing upon themselves like extraordinary suffering. Um, you know, every every Friday during the protest, they were risking their lives, risking their families' lives, um, because the soldiers would invariably um, come at them very hard um, with, you know, with tear gas, sometimes with live fire, with, with various other forms of munitions. And they would come back during the week, and they would raid people's homes in the middle of the night, and they would arrest people, they would arrest people's children, they would trash their houses. So they were sort of inviting into their lives extraordinary oppression. And all they had to do to kind of reduce it to the, the baseline humiliation that people suffer elsewhere in the West Bank was to stop protesting every Friday. And that they did not do and would not do. And I was interested in, in what it takes to, to keep struggling against a force that's impossibly more powerful than you are, and to keep going back knowing that in any kind of concrete way you can't win, um, that they were not going to topple the occupation all by themselves, um, but they were willing to, to, to take on all these sacrifices to, um, to keep fighting. And, and it was that that, that that fascinated me and kept me going back there. What interested me about Nabi Saleh was the basically unarmed resistance. Because when I was living in Jerusalem, uh, there was certainly armed resistance during the years of Oslo. I was there from 1995, basically all the way through 19, the beginning of 1999, and was an era of bus bombings and suicide bombings. So for me to read all about this ongoing, basically to my mind, obviously the Israelis feel something other happening, this peaceful resistance was inspiring but I wondered to myself, as I read today a list of all the Israelis killed during the uh, during the Second Intifada uh, by uh, Palestinian violence, I wondered to myself whether, you know, the wall, which is such a hateful symbol and a repugnant Kafka-like edifice, hasn't actually forced the Palestinians into this kind of behavior, rather than, you know, having them be on the other side capable of more violent, dramatic actions. No, I think, you know, because the, the, the first of these um, unarmed demonstrations took place in villages along the path of the wall. First in, in places like, uh, places that lost, like places like Bidu, um, then in a, a village called Budrus, which actually right. won and, and was able to get the wall moved. And they continue in places like Bilin and, and Nialin. So before the wall was built, when the wall was being built, and while suicide bombs were going into Israel, and while there was, you know, real combat throughout the West Bank, um, in the cities and in the villages, people in these villages decided that that wasn't the, the tactic they were going to use. They were going to try something, something different that they thought would be more effective. And, you know, I think um, it's also, if, if the horrible events of the last six, seven months have made anything clear, it's that the wall does not prevent violence. You know right. that that uh, that you know people have been going into Israel and attacking Israeli civilians despite the wall, um, and the wall didn't stop them at all. Your first chapter is titled "Life Is Beautiful." Uh, almost everything that happens in this chapter is terrible. So, who said life is beautiful, and what do they mean? A little boy who, at the time, I think was five or six, named Salam uh, Tamimi. Um, who was the youngest son um, of the family that I was staying with, 
I'm trying to remember the exact circumstances in which he said that. I think we were all sitting around outside the house one evening and discussing the, the horrors of the day. Um, and Salam just announced, my name is Salam, which of course means peace. Um, and life is beautiful, you know, in this, with this uh, force that only a six-year-old can bring to a declaration like that. And, it, you know, it struck me that he was right. And I, and I think that that was something that I wanted to make sure was clear throughout this book, which is a book about really sad and heartbreaking and off, often really awful things happening um, in this really protracted way. That despite that, you know, people love one another and people love their lives and um, and find beauty in their lives and find beauty in each other. And I mean, that was certainly a constant for me while I was there. And, and I wanted to make sure that that readers felt that, too. The people who march to the spring are not just... Palestinian villagers, there are some international solidarity activists, and there are some Israelis. There's one named Jonathan Pollock. Tell us about Jonathan Pollock. Jonathan's an interesting guy. He was one of the founders of a group called Anarchists Against the Wall that from the very beginning, the very early days, I think they started in 2002, it might have been 2003, um, but from the, the very earliest days of the construction of the wall, um, a small group of Israelis, Jonathan among them, started uh, going to Palestinian villages and offering their solidarity and and offering you know their their presence um, in whatever way it could could be helpful to those those struggles and Jonathan all these years later now you know more than a decade later you can count on it on almost every Friday you'll find him in Nabisala there are there are others who do this as well Jonathan has been arrested I think more than more than fifty times I think I've certainly seen him arrested at least half a dozen times if not more. That alone, I think, is, is is instructive in that Jonathan has, he's arrested and he's let go. Once, I think, he was sentenced to about a month in, in prison. Um, whereas, of course, if a Palestinian is arrested under the same circumstances, they are not, they're generally not released the same day. And, you know, they're tried under a completely different military court system, which uh, holds on to them for considerably longer and treats them with considerably fewer rights. Basim your friend and the central figure in the protests at the spring talked uh, briefly about suicide bombings. Of course, America, what Americans know about the Palestinian struggle is mostly the reports in the mainstream media of suicide bombings. He called suicide bombings the big mistake. What, what did he mean? What was he talking about? He meant that, I think in a, probably in more complicated ways than I'm going to um, make clear, that they were an enormous tactical mistake that and the great cost of suicide bombings was exactly what you say that that after the years of the first intifada when palestine was able to project this international image that sort of corrected um a lot of the kind of spectacular terrorism of the 1970s and the and the early 80s that after the first intifada the image of pa the palestinian struggle abroad was of kids throwing rocks at tanks um it was of an unarmed resistance against a much more powerful enemy and that all of that was sacrificed by suicide bombs that that was that was that sort of disappeared in the consciousness of the international community and people instead understood Palestinian struggle in terms of terrorism, in terms of attacks on civilians, et cetera, et cetera. And that this was a, this was a huge setback. And one of the things that, that he was trying to, hoping to correct through the kind of unarmed resistance that Nabi Saleh was offering was another vision of what it might mean to resist, not just for other Palestinians, but for the world. 
But wasn't his family, in fact, the, the broad Tamimi family, involved in a lot of uh, quite violent actions against Israelis? I'm thinking of the attack in which possibly he participated and was arrested for, but his cousin Nizar was arrested for, the attack on Haim Mitzrahi, in which the guy was basically knifed to death, uh, and it was a political action, and also Ahlam Tamimi, another, I assume, cousin or distant relation of, of Bassem's, who was the woman, young woman, uh, who uh, selected the Sabaro Pizza uh, outlet in Jerusalem as a target for a suicide bombing, brought the suicide bomber there, instructed him to stay for 15 minutes, have his pizza, and then blow himself up. You know, what you say in the book about how, her... How many people were killed at Sparrow? Fifteen people. Eight of them, arguably, children, if you count down from the age of 18. And what you say about her in the book is her relatives in Nabi Saleh still speak of her with great affection. She was released in the exchange for uh, Gilad Shalit. So, you know, he may say it was a bad, big mistake, but isn't the Tamimi family somehow, weren't they complicit in the whole action? Yeah, you know, I think the, the Tamimi family, like like most Palestinian families in the West Bank or in Gaza, you'd be hard-pressed to find a Palestinian family that doesn't have strong ties to the military resistance, um, to, to armed resistance, whether that's suicide bombs or the kind of attack that Bassam's cousins, three cousins, were convicted in, um, and which Bassam was originally charged in, on Hayam Mizrahi that resulted in his death. No one, no one disowns this violence. And... You know, what, what Bassam, the way he always articulated to me was, like, we have a right to resist. Um, we're people under occupation. We have a right to resist with whatever means are at our disposal. Under international law, we have a right to resist. He feels that they tried a military route. It failed. It lost them a great deal of international standing. It is impossible for Palestinians with the limited resources available to them to pose any real threat to the Israeli army. And therefore, they had to try something else. But but people there don't disown those acts, you know, in much the same way that I think uh, a lot of Israeli families would would not be willing to admit that they're ashamed of of family members for for being members of the IDF and taking part in um, in the Gaza attacks, in the example. Gaza attacks, or in you know in, in many other things. I'm completely upfront in the book about you know I don't hide these 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 incidents, but you don't feature them either. I don't feature them either, and the reason is that I think. To get too um, caught up in them means suggesting, which I'm not willing to do, that some people have a right to violence and other people do not. Um, and I think that's, when, when I would talk about it with Bassam, that's what, what he would end up saying. You know, nobody asks the Israelis to give up their right to violence. Nobody asks the Israelis to, you know, to put down their weapons and no longer engage in violence. Um, and but Palestinians are expected to disown violence, to to refuse it, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, I I think this is problematic. Um, that you know we call certain things terrorism, and we call other things you know sort of legitimate state violence. I agree with you, but I looked at Ahlam Tamimi, and you know when she's talking about at leaving Sabaros after the bomb went off, and she says, oh, at first I heard we had killed three, and no one on the bus knew that I was the one who was responsible, but I was so excited. And then when I heard it was 12, that was even better, and everyone was clapping. You get the feeling, of course, that these people need to express their extreme unhappiness. 
but there's a an element of gloating that you wish were not so uncomfortable and horrible in a young woman like her who's obviously bright and, you know, would have been wonderful in another setting. Yeah, you know, I, I think uh, there's a lot of extremely ugly emotions on, on, on all sides of this, and, and um, I certainly wouldn't try to hide that. I also don't want to, you know, minimize, like, the real suffering and pain that, that suicide bombing has caused in Israel. I don't go into that in any great depth because... That's I, not what the book is about. That's not what the book is about. And I think any American who's read anything about this topic at all has probably read a lot about the suffering that Israel's have, the Israelis have endured because of suicide bombings. And they don't need it from me again. Um, and I don't think I need to touch that base. And I don't think people should be required to touch that base if they're going to talk about this conflict. Well, we're just about out of time here. The big question that brought you to this book and that we need the answer to is, <laughs> What makes it possible for these people to keep fighting against such tremendous odds? I mean, in a way, the book is a is a four hundred page answer to that question. Um, so it's hard to summarize it. But yes. I think um, from from a great distance, occupation looks miserable, and 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 we see the violence and whatnot. But one thing we don't see is the the horrific choices um, that this kind of violence puts before everybody. Um, these these impossible moral decisions, and one of them is, is to resist or not to resist. If you resist, you you risk losing everything. You know, if you choose not to, you also will certainly lose a lot. Let's go to your comedic dimension, and let's start with one of the speeches that Prime Minister Netanyahu made to a joint session of Congress. It wasn't the one in 1996 where he said that it was coming very soon, the end of U.S. aid to Israel, because Israel's a modern, productive, prosperous economy. That was 1996, and then he negotiated with Barack Obama a $38 billion, 10-year U.S. aid package to Israel. It's always good to remember history. But he once spoke to a joint session of Congress. He got 29 standing ovations, leading some comedian to say, maybe this should be put in an exercise video for members of Congress every morning. (laughs) What was your observation on that one? Well, to paraphrase Shakespeare, you know, they doth applaud too much. I mean, you know, when somebody gets up and applauds every few seconds, it kind of seems fake. You know, it's kind of like getting complimented too much. You know, you start to think it's weird. It's obviously, look, I mean, the Israeli lobby is strong, but it's not based on justice or shared values like people say. It's based on pressure. It's based on fear. And in fact, it's based on also the Israeli lobby has employed for decades Islamophobic tropes to get through to people in Congress and to get through the American public. I think that because it's so fake, right, because it's so it's not based on any sort of values that it can be changed pretty quickly. And in fact, 
I've started to learn as a Palestinian that that sort of stuff doesn't matter to me anymore. Netanyahu coming and speaking to Congress, I mean, he's wildly more popular in Washington than he is in Israel. And coming and speaking and getting all those standing ovations, that doesn't bother me as a Palestinian anymore. It used to bother me, but it doesn't bother me anymore because as I go to Palestine all the time, I realize that all that really matters is what's happening in Palestine. And what's happening in Palestine are things that the Israelis can't control. First and foremost is us, right? I mean, we talk about back in 1948. If you go back to 1948, the Israelis kicked out lots and lots of Palestinians from what is today Israel. My dad was one of them. Uh, He became a refugee in Jordan. And they kicked out about 750,000 Palestinians. However, about 150,000 Palestinians remained in what is today Israel. Now, if those 150,000 Palestinians, if they grew after 69 years, at the normal average population growth rate of the world, they should be today about 450 to 500,000 people. However, they are 1.7 million people, all right? We are a demographic threat, proudly, and that has been one of our agendas. We don't have weapons, okay? We don't have tanks, we don't have helicopters, but we do have a very, the Palestinian reproductive system is a very, very, very powerful weapon. I always say that they drop bombs and we drop babies, okay? My parents are like sometimes seen as a small family. We have, we're four kids. That's a small Arab family, as Ralph knows. That's not a big family. People say, when you have four kids, people say, what's wrong with you? Why are you only having four kids? You know, and I think, what, what's America? 2.1 or whatever, how many kids you're supposed to have? It is different for us. That is how we resist. Nine months after every war in Gaza, the hospitals are full. People are having babies when people cannot work, when the lights are off, when they don't have any opportunity, when they don't have freedom of movement. Well, guess what they do? All right. And so that is something that Israel can't control. In fact, demographics are destiny in Israel. When you look at the Israeli population, the Israeli Jewish population, all right, already 20 percent of the Israeli population is Palestinian non-Jews. But what happened over the years is that Israel started out as this sort of like European white supremacist sort of thing. But there wasn't enough of them. So then they brought Arab Jews in 49 and 50 from Iraq, Yemen, Tunisia, Morocco, and a lot came from Iran. Well, those people came. Those people don't really fit into the Zionist ideal. And what's happened now after 60 years is that they're reverting to their culture. So a lot of Israelis are Arabs who are Jews who are speaking Arabic in their households now, and they're singing Arabic music at their weddings. About and eating hummus, and they're allowed to eat hummus. They're allowed to say hummus belongs to them, all right? The ones from Europe aren't, but they are. And then you have Ethiopian Israelis who are a small amount of the population, but still speaking a lot of their native language. Then you had Israel still didn't have enough people and brought a million Russians in the 90s, and they have now come to Israel. And the Israelis told them, look, if you have one grandparent who's Jewish, you can come. And they came, a million of them, because it was the fall of the Soviet Union, economy was really bad. They came, they got a job in a house. Now they've been in Israel for a generation. Well, guess what they're doing, Ralph? They are building churches now. They're marrying Arab Christians. They are being buried in Arab Christian cemeteries, because guess what? They're not, a lot of them aren't Jews. They're Russian Orthodox. That's their culture. That's who they are. So the whole, this whole identity thing of Israel being a Jewish only state, 
doesn't exist in reality. You have the land has been Arab for 1500 years. That is a hard thing to fight against. And as Ralph knows, being Arab is like contagious. All right. Like when I always see it all the time in America, when an Arab marries a non-Arab, especially if they marry a white person, the Arab doesn't become more white. All right. The white person becomes one of us. That's the way it works. We're very contagious. They might have been living their nice, peaceful, sort of white life, you know, just not worrying about anything. And then they marry one of us, and all of a sudden they're dancing in circles. They're kissing other men. They are, uh, uh, they are, you know, find out that they have 35 cousins they never heard of. All of a sudden someone shows up and stays at your house for three weeks. I mean, it's different. They become us. And so that happened in Palestine, too. The culture is contagious and it's in the land. You can't do anything about it. And Jerusalem, I don't know if you've ever been to, to Jerusalem, Ralph, but if you go to the old city of Jerusalem, still to this day, after 70 years of Israel and after 50 years of military occupation inside Jerusalem, the old city of Jerusalem is about 90 percent Arab still. And if you don't want to get cheated doing business in the old city of Jerusalem, well, guess what language you have to speak? Arabic. And that is the culture of the land. All right. And there's nothing wrong with that. And that, I think, is eventually going to win out. And we already see it happening. So if Israel really wants to move forward and if Israel wants to remain a place where it can say it's a democracy and it can say it's a safe place for Jews, because ironically, right now, Israel is probably the most dangerous place for Jews on the planet, not the safest, then it has to become a democracy in a secular way. All right. And you will find very quickly that Palestinians don't have a problem with that. Jews are not foreign to us. Israel is what foreign to us, not Jews. You write about Arabia Shawamra, whose home uh, has been demolished seven, several times, seven times actually, by the Israeli authorities. For decades, Israeli officials have violated the international law of occupation, prohibiting the destruction of property except for reasons of military necessity. Arabia Salim and their children who live with long-lasting psychological damage from the repeated demolitions of their home are paying the price. After the first demolition, Arabia was unable to speak for a month and remains fragile psychologically. Salim and Arabia's children still suffer, especially from nightmares and panic attacks. What kind of psychological impact does occupation have on the lives of those occupied? What kind of psychological impact did you seeing being manifested in those who are the victims of occupation? Well, Chuck, I mean, in this specific case where you find that you apply, you know, you own the land, you have worked hard overseas, you come back, you have bought a piece of land, you apply for permits for area, which is in Area C, which is basically all construction permits are issued by the government of Israel. You are denied permit after permit. And when you finally go ahead and just make yourself a home so you can be there with your children... Uh, we heard in detail what's it like when in the middle of the night, um, you know, IDF forces arrive and they start demolishing your home. Uh, imagine as a child or even as a grown-up to wake up to this loud screaming, shouting lights in your faces, your home, no chance to collect your possessions and your homes are being destroyed. is horrifying. It was the same sentiment that was expressed by the 
villages of the Bedouin village, which had been destroyed just in January, and the mayhem that is caused, and somebody trying to just run away in their car with their TV, the few possessions they have, only to be shot dead in this mayhem and chaos. Uh, the fear that people experience, or in the case of Hebron, when every day, even as a child, a six, seven-year-old, you go through 23 permanent checkpoints in the old city of Hebron, where your life, when you look up, you have to have this wire mesh to capture the junk, the garbage that is being thrown by the settlers who live above you. This is your everyday existence. This is your everyday existence where because you're Palestinian, because you are, you know, seven, eight-year-old young boy who's Palestinian, the fact is your school bags are checked. Imagine, imagine what it feels like when you live life like that, when you're always being looked at with suspicion. Way as you enter area A, which is the Palestinian area, there would be this big red signs which warn Israeli citizens to be careful because their life might be in danger because you're entering Palestinian area. You know, this constant reminder of Palestinian as a bomb-throwing, as a stabbing individual. The image of always being a criminal, it gets to you after a while. Um, we, uh, in Hebron, that was just a very stark example of uh, of occupation where some of the most violent settlers have taken over the old city of Hebron, which, by the way, all these checkpoints came when an Israeli settler opened a gunfire in the Ibrahimi Mosque, killing, uh, you know, 29 Palestinians, and many of the Palestinians were killed in the chaos that ensued. And then they find their lives are taken over, their homes are taken over. You can't walk on your main commercial street, which has been boarded up. And just recently, 31 settlements were approved on Shuhada Street by Netanyahu. So when you look at that every day, the impact is very deep. It is, uh, you know, in the village of Nabi Saleh, I met children who are reporting from the occupied village of Nabi Saleh, nine, ten year old, and speaking to Bassem, one of the organizers in Nabi Saleh, I asked him that people say that by bringing children to the protest, you are denying their childhood, who have to face these grenades of IDF, you have to see these soldiers. And... You know, his daughter said, if there was no occupation, I would like to be a football player. But for now, I have to be a protester. And it's clear the childhood is being taken away by the occupation and not by the Palestinian parents. We have been speaking with correspondent Anurada Matal. She reports to us on all things concerning land development around the world. She led the team in the new Oakland Institute report, Palestine for Land and Life. I just had one last question for you that is related to what exactly what you were just talking about. How much do you think there is any degree of a lack of sympathy or empathy or support for those in the occupied territories because of any, any uh, lack of understanding of what occupation is like on a daily basis. How much do you think that there's a lack of sympathy for Palestinians in the occupied territories simply because we don't know what's happening to the Palestinians in the occupied territories? Well, Chuck, it is not just a lack of understanding. First of all, it is such a political debate, especially in the United States where you right now have laws where in Texas, if you've been impacted by the hurricane, um, you cannot get aid if you are supporting BDS, boycott, divest, and sanctions movement against Israel. 
there's been such a strong lobby in the United States, which tells us to ignore the plight of Palestinians. Supporting Palestinians or seeing the consequences of occupation and speaking out against it, we need to be very clear, does not mean that you are anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish. It only means that you are for human rights for all, you are for dignity for all, you are for freedom for all. And unfortunately, the way it has been presented in the Western world that speaking out for Palestinian rights means that you are against Jewish rights, this is totally wrong. And we need to fight that. We need to support. You know, it's almost like saying when people supported, um, you know, the BDS movement against apartheid in South Africa means that if you were supporting freedom for South Africa and ending of apartheid, it means being totally against the whites. That is wrong. This is really about looking, learning, and building an international community, which is a safe place for all. We also need to understand that till there's peace and justice for all in that region, there will be no international peace and justice. So we have to start looking at our foreign policies. We have to start looking as, you know, and that's what we had to do as researchers working around land issues. There is no denying what is happening in the occupied territory. And it does require courage, as we have found, to speak out what you see, what you research. Uh, and you will be labeled as being anti-Jewish, but this is not about being anti-Jewish. This is only about being for human rights for all. This is about land rights for all. It's about liberty for all and livelihoods for all with dignity. We've just heard clips today, starting with Ralph Nader talking with Amir Zar in two parts about his vision for what he referred to as liberation for his people in Palestine. This is Hell spoke with Anna Rada Mittal, who was making the distinction that the conflict may have less to do with religion than people generally think, and more to do with land. Start Making Sense discussed life in Palestine, including a nuanced discussion of the counterproductive effects of violence on the part of Palestinians. And finally, we just heard part two from This is Hell speaking with Anurata Mittal about the psychological effects of the occupation. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is Marguerite from Fortuna, California. I was just calling back in response to the Jeff, Jeff and Jeff Although I don't know that I'm one of those strictly smart people I heard your response and then I actually went back and listened to the privacy episode. So here's a couple things I don't think have been mentioned yet. Um, one is, um, I know one of the Jeffs, the one who called in, was talking about how things are getting a little bit conflated and how we should have, like, denote the lesser uh, versus the more egregious sexual assault. And you answer that with, you know, looking at how we're looking at things as a scale and shades of gray and things like that. But I think it goes a little bit deeper than that. I think we need to look at how it has been enculturated, um, that it really has been kind of normalized and joked about in much of our culture. I mean, if you think about in popular media, there is, you know, the character of Sean Connery, who says, you know, 57 yos and a yes is still a yes. 
and then otherwise in the character of Steve Urkel, who literally we watched this guy for seasons continue to wear down his, you know, love interest. And he would even say, I'm wearing you down. Like the fact that it's been enculturated that this is normal behavior when it's really not. You have a unconsenting party. And when we're looking at ideas of consent, that it's inappropriate. And I know that probably one of the things with the NFC Safari thing came out was that a lot of people had to look back at their lives and think, oh, I have done this or I've gone through this and maybe this was not right. So I think that's the reason why this one kind of hit closer to home is because it's literally a part of our culture and we need to examine that part of our culture and really point out that it's not right. And then the other thing um, a little just mentioned was uh, concern about the men's lives that are ruined and the false accusations and things like that. And I think you got at it with, uh, you know, there's really not much in it for a woman to falsely accuse someone. And then also, you know, there's not many men who have really been taken down on account of this. I mean, unfortunately, you literally have to have scores of women on stand giving trial and testimony. And even then, men will often feel like it is something they shouldn't have to listen to. And only at that point are these things even really being addressed. So I don't necessarily feel sorry for the men. I don't. There are way more women who's having their lives ruined by these um, assaults. So I think those are just two facts to bring in. Thanks for all you do. Sorry for the cat. Hi, Jay. This is Susie from Chicago. Long time, first time. I'm responding to your episode about the Harvey Weinstein effect and about the Me Too movement and all of the comments that have come in after that. I just want to note that I'm troubled in this movement that the focus continues to be on punitive measures. And I get it that we're used to responding to things in that way and I do think that negative consequences are necessary but can we also talk about cultural shifts in terms of prevention in a little bit more comprehensive ways there's a great website about this called the good man project I don't know a ton about them but they investigate the role of men in America and I think that also in Australia basically western anglophone cultures that are still struggling with patriarchy they give men advice about how to do the right thing, how to live fairly, um, help each other break the mold of what they've been taught. I believe the United Nations has taken an interest in them, and maybe the United Nations has their own set of programs on this topic. This reminds me a little bit of when Trevor Noah last year was interviewing Tommy Lahren about the Take a Knee movement, and they went back and forth, as liberals and conservatives do, but... Trevor finally said, okay, maybe taking a knee is not the way to be an activist or to do what he was trying to do. And he said, I just want to know what is the right way? What is the right way for a black man to exercise his rights? I'm paraphrasing, but the idea of what is the right way should also be applied to sexual behavior. We live in such a repressed puritanical culture that sometimes I think we forget that sexual behavior is healthy and important 
it's just that we're doing it wrong and the communication piece is lacking. So on, <laughs> on behalf of all American men, or maybe as someone with relative power, I'm asking what is the right way? Um, I also think that we should be investigating early child education and how to break down those gender roles earlier and looking to egalitarian cultures. Forget feminism, ugh, so tired of what we've used that word for. Um, maybe looking to egalitarian cultures to decide how kids in early education can be learning about gender and about how to treat each other, regardless of gender, more specifically. So, what's next? Can we be egalitarian at some point? Do we have a men's liberation movement from the left? I think you can actually shed a lot more light on this, Jay, and that there are groups out there to help talk about it. Thanks. Love your show. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, just a quick follow-up to the voicemail that we just heard from Susie. I heard from her after she left that message. She wanted to give this little addendum. She says, quote, Ironically, I'm now a little nervous that I didn't make enough disclaimers to say that I am in support of the Me Too movement, that in fact I participated in the solidarity of it by sharing my own story of victimhood, and that my sympathy for perps comes purely from a public health-minded perspective of desire for progress. Our next steps require forgiveness and tough love and all those things that are super tricky because they require us to not take sides. I am not anti-feminist. I just think we can do better, unquote. So to respond to her uh, question that she sort of posed in my direction, um, first of all, you know, thanks to Susie for having the faith in me that I may be able to set us on the path to egalitarianism in the society. Uh, as someone with the confidence of a mediocre white guy, I'm pretty sure I'm up to the task. So let's get started. Uh, first off, I want to read a bit from the Lindy West article in the New York Times titled Aziz, We Tried to Warn You. Lindy says, quote, Susan Brown Miller wrote in 1975, Against Our Will, Men, Women, and Rape, and says in it, quote, All rape is an exercise of power, but some rapists have an edge that is more than physical. Sometimes, the 1975 text suggests rapists, quote, operate within an emotional setting or within a dependent relationship that provides a hierarchical authoritarian structure of its own that weakens the victim's resistance, distorts her perspective, and confounds her will, unquote. And Lindy goes on in that article to list several more examples from activism and academia wherein women try to talk about the cultural and 
statutory structures that they thought needed to change. And she talks uh, about um, the affirmative consent law that uh, happened in California back in 2014. It made a big splash because it it seemed so new and so beyond our reach and and just outside the concept of what we understood uh, consent to be. And we all thought that no means no was good enough. And we were switching it to yes means yes. And people went into a panic thinking that now every kind of sex I've ever had turns out to have been assault. And uh, so there was a lot of uh, backlash to that. But of course, it turns out that that law was basically just a rewrite of what a feminist group at Antioch College was demanding at least as far back as 1991. The point is, this stuff is not as new as we think it is. So Lindy concludes in her article, quote, The notion of affirmative consent did not fall from space in October 2017 to confound well-meaning but bumbling men. It was built loudly and painstakingly and in public at great personal cost to its proponents over decades. If you're fretting about the perceived overreach of hashtag MeToo, maybe start by examining the ways you've upheld the stigmatization of feminism. Nuanced conversations about consent and gendered socialization have been happening every single day that Aziz Ansari has spent as a living, sentient human on this earth. The reason they feel foreign to so many men is that so many men never felt like they needed to listen. Rape is a women's issue, right? Men don't major in women's studies. It may feel like the rules shifted overnight, and what your dad called the thrill of the chase is now what some people are calling assault. Unfortunately, no one, even plenty of men who call themselves feminists, wanted to listen to feminist women themselves. We tried to warn you. We wish you'd listened too." So that that, uh, sets the stage well, I think. And now back to Susie's question, how do we do egalitarianism in sex and love correctly. And my answer to that is that we need to divest from privilege, take power dynamics into consideration, and diffuse them when possible. And now this concept is undoubtedly going to be very new to a lot of people, though again, it shouldn't be as it's also been around for several decades. Uh, So it's a concept that is probably more easily understood in other contexts. So I'll start there and bring it back. Uh, So think about times that you may have heard of even when white people were asked to march at the front of a Black Lives Matter protest and to keep themselves between the police and the people of color. That is an example of actually using relative privilege for the protection of the relatively oppressed. Um, But here's a similar but different story. Uh, And I just came across this. I was looking for examples of divesting from privilege. This is a pretty good example that came across my, uh, you know, consciousness. And so think about a security line in which multiple races of people going through the security line, but the black people are being wanded with a metal detector and a white woman steps up and is told by the security guard that she can go straight through. You know, she just has that kind of face, you know, we don't need to uh, look at you more thoroughly. And in that that case, that woman can do one of two things. You know, she can just walk through and think, oh boy, that's terrible that all those people are being uh, profiled. 
or she can decide to actually divest herself of that privilege and demand that she be treated the same way. And so as the story that I was reading put it, quote, if individual whites insist on receiving the same security treatment, for example, they can work to eliminate the idea that blackness equals dangerous slash guilty and the idea that whiteness equals safe slash innocent. Both components are necessary to combat oppression and privilege, unquote. Okay, so hopefully we have a sense of what divesting from privilege means as a general concept. So what does that mean in the context of dating and sex? To me, it means committing oneself to understanding, first of all, the dynamics of privilege and power that exist and working to consciously subvert them in one's own life. So for example, I'll I'll use the one that many men seem to have the most trouble with, which is why it is not perfectly okay to ask out women at work even if you're not her boss. And the piece of context that these men are missing is the privilege that they have in that scenario, which is likely completely invisible to them. So in our fucked up culture, women are far more likely to be socially and possibly even professionally punished for dating in the workplace than men are. You know, men are more likely to be congratulated for bagging another one, while women are more likely to be accused of trying to exchange sex for career advantages or just simply slut-shamed. You know, men's personal and professional worth is far more likely to be seen as completely separate. You know, whatever they do in their personal life doesn't matter as long as they're getting their work done. You know, why should we care what Bill Clinton does in his personal life as long as he's doing a good job, etc.? While women are far more likely to be seen as unserious in her work if she's dating a coworker. And these are the inequalities that create relative privilege for men who are interested in trying to date a colleague. And these are the issues that go through a woman's mind the moment she's asked out by that colleague. And on a slightly different note, you know, we can use this Aziz Ansari story as an example because it it brings so many of these uh, issues to the fore and, and use it as a different example of how privilege plays out. You know, Ansari's age, wealth, and fame all add up to some degree of power imbalance between himself and most other people in the world, that woman he went on a date with included. And what I think the solution is to both of these imbalances, you know, the dude at the workplace, I'm sorry, you know, dating some unfamous, unrich person, is to begin insisting and expecting that people like this divest themselves of their privilege rather than exploiting it. You know, we can see clearly how toxic it is when massive amounts of power are overtly exploited. In in cases like, you know, Cosby and Trump and Weinstein and Lauer and so on. But Ansari not being able to take no for an answer or some dude in an office who doesn't understand why it puts a woman in an uncomfortable position to be asked out by a colleague are clearly not as bad but are on the same spectrum, which is what this conversation always comes back to, understanding what that spectrum is. And in this case, the spectrum is people being cavalier with their privilege. And the solution is to divest from your power and privilege, no matter how much or little you have. 
But the first step is to understand those power dynamics in the first place. And the second step is to acknowledge and address those dynamics in all of your interactions. So using these two examples, you know, if you work in an office and you want to date a colleague, then probably the best thing you can do is nothing. But if you just can't resist asking her out, then at least let her know you understand the negative impacts that are likely to befall her if she says yes and give her an out to say no on those grounds right from the beginning. And if you're a moderately rich and famous person who's probably grown accustomed to people being interested in you, then you need to be all the more vigilant about abiding by the tenets of affirmative consent. You know, or, or better yet, help compensate for the power imbalance by letting the other person set the pace. So, so hopefully this doesn't take much imagination to transpose as a general concept onto many other scenarios. If you can think of more examples that might be illuminating, I would love to hear them. You know, and, and really, all of this is just a different way of describing the mirror image of the old, tired idea of reflexively arguing for victims to use their agency to protect themselves, which brings us full circle back to where these conversations always start, the unimaginative argument that victims could have done something better to prevent themselves from being victimized. And, and so before I go, I want to play another quickly edited clip from another regular caller, Dave from Olympia, who I think has some good insights into why that is usually where these conversations go. There's a principle that it's better to assume incompetence rather than maliciousness. And I think there's a natural tendency to want to focus on agency, but it, it stems from a lack of imagination and from laziness in some cases. It's, it's easier to go there. And it's not necessarily, it could be, but it's not necessarily intentionally malicious. Decent human being who wants to help the situation hears of someone who's experienced something terrible and rape, you've suffered harassment, something bad has happened, and that's horrible. I feel bad. This shouldn't have happened to you. This shouldn't happen to anyone. And, you know, there are times when you should listen and be supportive, and there are times when this needs to be addressed. And I think there's a momentum in the air that something can change, that we can do better and make permanent gains in this area. But even if the you know person makes those logical leaps and says, we should do something, it's an easy logical leap to say, well, in this case, with this person in these circumstances, oh, you should have not been there. You, you know, oh, if you'd stood up for yourself, we could have avoided that. Ah, problem solved, right? But it, it's micro. And it's because you can imagine a scenario where someone in a bad situation takes an action which prevents it from becoming a horrible situation. It's hard to imagine both a world and how we get there where that initial bad situation doesn't exist. 
So I completely agree with Dave's assessment. You know, when I, I first responded to uh, Jeff with a G when he emailed in and was decrying that this conversation didn't include enough talk about victim's agency, even though as I responded, that's pretty much all this conversation ever is. Um, but my response to him at the time was that I could tell he was obviously coming from a good place. He's clearly trying to help, but that he seemed to be saying what he was because he couldn't think of anything else to say. You know, as Dave just put it, there was a lack of imagination. So hopefully this, everything I've just said is my answer to that lack of imagination. These are the steps we can take on an individual basis and how we can talk to each other about these things to imagine that world in which these bad situations don't happen in the first place. So thanks to our caller Susie for trusting that I, as a straight white guy, would probably have all the answers to this conundrum. Uh, you know, maybe you think I did, maybe not, but in either case, I learned it all by listening to women who have been shouting this stuff for decades. As always, keep the comments coming in. The number to dial, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.